Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Play On Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Hans. Today we are sitting down with Brad Carroll, director of this season's production of South Pacific. Brad has worked with the festival for many seasons and is quite the talented individual. Brad is a performer, director, musician, and composer. He's directed numerous shows here at the festival, including Les Miserables, Anything Goes, A Christmas Carol on the Air, and last season's The Comedy of Errors. Brad is also the composer of the musical adaptation Lend Me a Tenor the Musical, which debuted on London's West End in 2012. He currently works at PCPA as a resident artist, artistic associate. It's great Hello to have there. You. you had a late night last we night. We did. You were in tech rehearsals. <laughs> Tell us how yeah, it's going. It's going really well. I mean, we're right on schedule, and um, you know, things are filtering in, and as they do here, we're getting things as you know, as things are, are prepared for us technically, but we're, we've been able to stay on schedule, and the, the morale in the in rehearsal is just great, and uh, yeah, I couldn't be more pleased. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's a time. It really is always a time to come together in tech and yeah. everyone's oh, fighting it's, it's for the my same thing. Favorite part of the process is when it all goes together. When you're working on a on a Broadway musical big show like South Pacific, what are some of the special challenges that the tech process brings? Well, in any of the especially the older musicals, there are multiple, multiple set changes, you know, and that that's always a big part of the tech process. I try to get most of them staged and in the rehearsal hall because they're all actor driven. So we were able to, to do a lot of that as opposed to waiting till you get to tech to have to figure out how it's all going to work. And there's still a little bit of that just because suddenly there's backstage traffic and graphics and all that sort of stuff. But um, I mean, one of the other big issues is just is, is having an orchestra and balancing 12 musicians down there that are all amplified and, and actors with microphones and just getting it all to work in a theater that was not designed to have musicals done in it. Exactly. So it has yeah. its particular challenges, but we've got, you know, great support there as well. And even that is going so well that I don't really even have to worry about it much because well, of the, great the people, hear. you know, Barry and Michael and and everybody. It's just one of one less thing for me to have to think about because it's so well handled. So you've been directing here at Utah Shakespeare Festival for just a little while. A while, yeah. What brought you here originally to work? An email from Scott Phillips. Really? Yeah. I was actually in Japan. I was working for Disney over in Tokyo in the summer of 2001. And in August of that summer, I got this random email from Scott Phillips, who I knew and had met. And I'd been to the festival as, a, as an audience member a couple of summers before that, asking me if I'd like to come direct Man of La Mancha. Huh. You know, and I guess because Shakespeare isn't what... In those days, I, I necessarily was my specialty in any way. I'd never really considered working at a Shakespeare festival because I'm a guy who does musicals. Right. But then when musicals became a real part of their season, I mean, I was thrilled. I was honored. I said yes immediately. And so I came in and did Man of La Mancha that summer and have been coming back almost every summer since. What keeps you coming back? I, I love Cedar City. I love this festival. I, I just love the... The, the company spirit of the place and, and the work, you get to do good work here. And there's a, a lot of great support for the work you want to do. And it's, it's, 
it's a little bit like a paid vacation sometimes. You know what I mean? I mean, there's work to yeah. be done. And yet you're in this beautiful setting. You can go hiking on the weekends. And I don't know. It's it's hard to put into words. But I I will keep coming back here as long as they keep asking me. That's good to know. Yeah. Great to hear. <laughs> um, so you've worked on South Pacific before. This is not your first foray with this play. No, I did it 21 years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. And tell us about that experience. Well, it was... It was uh, at PCPA, uh, which is a conservatory theater, so it was a combination of resident artists and students. And I mean, one of the great stories about that production is the, the woman who's playing Bloody Mary for us, Christine Hugetta, was in the chorus of that production and understudied Liot. Wow. And I haven't seen Christine in 20 years, and here we are working together again, and she's playing that phenomenal role of Bloody Mary. And well, it's also great to visit it. You know, I was in my late 30s then, and do the math. I'm not anymore. <laughs> and it's it's a there's a slightly different perspective about it. You know, and the world's a different place than it was 20 years ago. And it's it's great to see how the piece hasn't changed, but point of view about the piece has changed and just certain things resonated slightly differently for me now than they did before and it's a different group of actors and you know, you take all of that into consideration, but it's, I mean, it's one of my favorites, first of all. So I was happy to revisit it. Sure, um, and it's yeah. just been a real pleasure. So talk about how you see it differently now, 20 years later. Well, now I see it slightly more from the perspective of Emile Dubeck. <laughs> <laughs> I think before I was more of a Billis guy, uh -huh. you know. And there's just something about that age difference uh, in, in the primary romance. And I don't know, I just... I. I feel like I have a, a broader foundation in the world and in the theater world than I had before. I mean, I was, you know, I'd been at it for a while then, but certainly not as long as I've been at it now. In a way, it's actually easier now. How so? I, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> I, I guess, I, I, guess I, I don't have to think quite as hard as I did before, or at least I think I don't. You know, mm -hmm. there's just there's just a, a sort of a body of knowledge that's part of who I am now that just makes the challenges a little easier to take on because there's just more experience behind me, I think. And I'm able to look at something and go, okay, we'll do that or we won't do that and not have to think about it as hard as I did those years ago. Sure. You know? Yeah, yeah. So... For those people who don't know South Pacific, tell us what this musical is about, without giving away any plot wow. details. Um, what 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 is the story about? Well, uh, it's. I mean, the setting, of course, is World War II in the South Pacific, but it's not about the war. The war is sort of the the backdrop and the ground cloth, if you will. It's about. The specific people, I mean, you know, James Michener's novel is based, all based on people he knew and met and had experiences with over there and just on a whim decided to write about it. And so what I love about the piece is it's, it's about real events, it's about real places, and it's about real people, even if fictionalized. So I think one of the things that makes South Pacific... Um, unique and also popular is unlike the other Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals which tend to be I mean Sound of Music is about the Von Trapp family 
The King and I is about Anna Leanne Owens and her relationship with the King of Siam. South Pacific to me is about every family in America because World War II is one of those part of our shared heritage, whether we were there or not. You know, I mean, I was born in the mid-50s, long after the war was over, but I was touched by the war because my grandfather served in the South Pacific on the same island as Jay Michener, so for all I knew, they were really? messmates. Yeah. Interesting. And my father fought in Germany in the Battle of the Bulge. So even though I, I wasn't even part of that, part of my growing up were those stories about what, what happened in, in both uh, you know, theaters of war. So it's, I mean, James, James Michener even talks about it. He says it's about, it's about the American family and what we went through. World War II was a war that people literally thought was not going to end. They thought it was going to go on forever. I mean, Nellie references that, you know, in the play. She says, uh, I don't think this is the end of the world like everybody else. And so when it did end and everybody came home, it's no wonder the baby boom happened. I mean, people wanted to buy a house and put up a white picket fence and have a family and sink roots as deeply as possible. So there's a, a real American zeitgeist to it that even as American as Rodgers and Hammerstein are, the others don't have. And I think that's part of its appeal. You know, um, so Michener, uh, Michener, through Oscar Hammerstein, explores the life of the sailors who were there on a supply island, they wanted nothing more than to be fighting and have guns in their hands, but instead they were parceling around, you know, cartons of pencils and toilet paper in these Quonset huts on these islands. It was a supply island and they're bored to tears. And then there, you know, the, the, the role of Emile de Beck and the plantation owner, and then you get into the world of the officers and the, and the world of the nurses and just the way they've made it all work together you get to see, it's sort of like a Shakespeare play, the different strata uh, of people in that setting, which was not a typical World War II setting. You know, everybody else was off fighting and these guys were twiddling their thumbs, waiting for something to do. Um, the story certainly feels like it's about people who are displaced or stuck in between worlds as well. Yes. Whether it's the, whether it's the, um, native people who lived on these islands right. or whether it's the characters of the soldiers or other folks in the in the show there's something about this notion of like being between worlds that's right interesting not, not in one or the other i mean and that interestingly you know the, the the big one of the big metaphors in the play is the island of bally high which was it wasn't called bally high but there actually was a place and in the play what it represents is that that place that people are either trying to get to or trying to stay away from. It sort of represents people's deepest desires. And you see both sides of that coin in, in the play. I mean, Billis is trying to get over there just to have some fun. And yet to other people, it rep it, to Cable, it represents this forbidden world that he ends up falling into, meeting this young island girl, falling madly in love with her, and then coming confronting his own prejudice about that when Bloody Mary tries to get her to marry him and have children and he hears those words and then all he can see is his family back home in New Jersey the day he brings this island girl home and says this is my wife and basically he 
probably would have been disowned by his family. So he comes up against that in a big way. So does Nellie Forbush with, with Emil, but it's, it's a slightly different sense because there's also dealing, they're dealing with the age difference, which we look at it now and go, what's the big deal? He's in his 40s, she's in her 20s. But in those days, it, it was a much bigger deal. And then for him to have become an Islander, you know, two and a half decades ago, married to an Island woman, had children by an Island woman, which through Nellie's eyes is a, they're not Island people. It's a much different, I mean, through her eyes, they are, they are black people, which is something she's not able to process. Yeah, and all of those, all of those points also, you know, become the entry point for the sort of more problematic aspect of this piece, which, um, you know, I think a lot of commentators and critics will talk about, and that is the racism that's sort of inherent in the piece. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how, as a director, you approach that when you take on a piece like this? Uh, well, I sort of hearken back to the spirit of Oscar Hammerstein, who wrote this play, chose to put to include these storylines, which are primary in the novel, and he wanted to make them primary in his musical. He came up against a lot of flack from theater owners, from producers, from colleagues, even some politicians got involved trying to, to convince him to take those plot lines out because it was not something you included in a musical. People didn't want to go to the theater to hear about those issues. And as one person said, it's not something you talk about in polite society. And they tried to get him to take out all the plot lines involving interracial relationships, and specifically the song, You've Got to Be Carefully Taught, which, and the title says it. I mean, basically it claims that nobody is born a racist. It's, you learn it somewhere along the line. And Oscar Hammerstein, to his credit, said, if we cut all of that, we have no play. And he insisted on leaving it in at the risk of South Pacific closing on opening night. And then it didn't. It became a huge hit. It won 10 Tony Awards. It won the Pulitzer, second musical ever to win the Pulitzer Prize in Drama. So his integrity is what made me want to approach it head on the way he wrote it. And I just think there's something about it because it's, it's I think, for its time, it's really elegantly handled. You know, and it may seem a little you know, Pollyanna and soft-pedaled to our modern sensibility, but you, I just think when you're doing a piece like this, you have to, you have to see it in its time. I mean, South Pacific is not one of those musicals you could set someplace else. Right. <laughs> you couldn't set it in, you know, Afghanistan and have it work, even though it's surrounded by war. It has to be where it is. So you really have to honor the, the time and, and the mindset of the time. So I just thought, let's do what Mr. Hammerstein wrote and honor that spirit. And, and then we're going to see what people think, which is basically what he did. And, you know, I have, I know people who go, oh, South Pacific is my favorite musical ever. Now what they're referring to is probably the beautiful score, right? You know, and the, the amazing characters, you know, probably it's not their favorite because of what it deals with on the darker side. Sure. But also, I mean, another thing about World War II and the setting is, I mean, in, in America, there's still a romantic aura 
that surrounds that event in our history. You know, you talk about people who were there, who, who survived it, who had family members. And it was, you know, it was America's last, quote unquote, romantic war. America sort of grew up after World War II. And the way Rodgers and Hammerstein write and those beautiful tunes sort of handle all of that. It makes the piece and it makes the setting romantic without having to do anything to make it romantic. I mean, some enchanted evening and and this nearly was mine and younger than springtime. I mean, they've done all of that work for us and all we have to do is live in it, you know? And you get that, that romance that's just implicit and inherent and undeniable. It's, it's just there. You talked a little bit about um, approaching this musical today, 20 years after you directed mm -hmm. it before, living in a different world. And of course, we're also almost, what are we, almost 70, 60, 70 years yeah, from almost, its almost 70 years, yeah. original premiere and from, from the publication of Mishner's novel. Um, so I guess I, I wonder what, what lens do you think we see South Pacific in today that whether it's with the discoveries that you've made with the cast and working on it this time or in your own exploration of the, of the play um, in, in preparation, how are we seeing it differently today because of the world that we're living in today? Well, I think, I think, uh, how do I put this? I think audiences today are seeing into the hearts of the characters in a different way than we used to, if that makes sense at all. You know, I think, sure. I think you know, people used to be able to quote unquote identify with certain characters, but I think just because of the world we live in, we're able to go more, we're able to go more deeply into who they are and be comfortable with that. You know, we're living in a more, a more open world that way and people talk about sharing their hearts more than they talked about it in those terms in the 40s. It's, a, it's an interesting point because it seems like at some level what you're talking about is fully fleshing out these characters that in some ways on the page 50 years ago might have seemed a little bit superficial yes, or that's a, maybe yeah. of a type. But what I think you're saying is that there's something underneath that too. And we're able to get to more of that now. Audiences are willing to accept and, and sort of want to see more of that rather than the cardboard two-dimensional cutout version of these people. And it's interesting that even in the writing, there's a certain size that's still necessary that with a lot of today's actors sometimes is hard to get to. The, the, because the they, big part. The big part. Yeah. Because they want to go internally with it. And so that's something as a director I'm constantly having to say, okay, that's really beautiful. And if we had a camera three inches from your face, you're ready to go. But we've got people who are 70 feet away from you who want to see into that as well. So how do you take that beautiful kernel of emotion that you've found and make it big enough to be seen by everybody in the Randall Theater? You know, and it's interesting with younger actors, especially who are, you know, are right out of school and they've been taught it's all about living in it and, 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 and being real. And I'm like, well, real is relative. 
in a musical like this. Real has to be bigger. And I actually have a, an old uh, video recording of a rehearsal of Mary Martin doing this in London. It was a rehearsal with no audience. They, I, they must have been doing it just a dress. And the playing style is so big because they were doing it at the Drury Lane Theater. And this is before microphones. The Drury Lane Theater is like 2,200 seats. So there's a, there's a size that was required, but I think it, it can work both ways. The language can be that big and be believable, and the language can also be that small and be believable, which says a lot about Oscar Hammerstein and the way he handled it. But it's just really interesting to watch the Mary Martin piece and go, wow, if we did that, people would be walking out because it seems so big and so loud and so presentational. And almost artificial. Yeah, that yeah. there doesn't seem to be much heart in it. And I think what brought the heart to it was that woman, was Mary Martin herself. You know, so it's that's one of the big challenges is getting the, getting the material to seem real but to be big enough to be shared so that my mom in row L still gets every little nuance. And even though we are amplified now and so which is different than doing a lot of, of the more contemporary pieces where the, the language is more prosaic and the language is more sort of stream of consciousness, you know, 2015. The language of the script is bigger. It's like Shakespeare. It, it can take the size, you know. And it's, it, In that way, it seems like this is kind of a perfect work as, as are many Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, a perfect work to do at a place like Utah Shakespeare Absolutely. Festival. We talked about that at the very first rehearsal. I said, this is, it's like a Shakespeare play to me because there are the, there are the two pairs of star-crossed lovers. There are the, the rustics, the local people. There are the mechanicals, the sailors, and all of their antics. There's the royalty or the law, which are the officers. And we're dealing with tragedy in this play, comedy, history, and social commentary. I mean, it has all the elements of a Shakespeare play in a way that some of the other Rodgers and Hammerstein pieces don't because it is dealing with a specific reality in our, in our history. And that sort of perked people up a little bit to think, oh, okay, there, this, there's more to this than originally when I, I got when I first read it. So I just, yeah, I think it's, it's a great, 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 great piece. And that's why it's been around for so long. You know, I, I often jokingly, and I, I make some people mad when I say this, I mean, I'll cite a piece that's a big hit right now and go, is it still going to be around in 70 years? Are people still doing blank in 70 years? I mean, it's hard to say, yeah. but there's something about these pieces that they have staying power because there's, it's like Shakespeare. There's a universality to them. They're not writing about something that is so specific that it can't live on. Even the sound of music, you know, um, lives on. It's a very true point. And also, at the same time, you brought up this point earlier, which is, which is also true of most of Rodgers and Hammerstein's books, I think. Mm -hmm. And that is that they are very specific to the time and place that they're written in. Yeah. And so unlike the Comedy of Errors, which you set in... The Gold Rush last season, yes. um, it's unlikely that we're going to see a viable production of South Pacific set anywhere but the South Pacific during World War II. Right. Or so, Oklahoma or, or, I mean, any of them, right, really, because right. they are so specific yet universal. And so when you think about bringing this play to an audience 
who is living several decades after this took place. And certainly some of the audience may come and have lived during that period. Some audiences are going to be younger and won't have memories of this time or will have second or third hand memories right. of this time um, from a different part of the world. What what are you thinking about as a director and, and how are you bringing those kinds of questions into the design process for this show? Well, and I think, you know, as you just said, there are going to be people who are going to remember it. And we've talked about this in rehearsal. There are probably going to be people who have never seen a production of South Pacific. And for those people, be they nine years old or 90 years old, there's, I, I think there's something, in, there, there's a learning process in this piece. I mean, there's, there's information in this piece that will be news to people about the war, about specific events, about specific people. And I think anytime somebody can sit in a play and learn something specific about their own country's history, there's something really, really valuable in that. Even if it's not a specific event, if it's an event that is that harkens back to another event. So I think, I think the lens can be telescopic or the lens can be microscopic, depending on who's behind the lens, you know? And I say this all the time, it doesn't matter what I'm directing. I mean, one of the things I think is really important in doing a play is you, you have to honor the form. You know, you can't do, you can't, you can try to twist it into another form, but the level of success, you know, we did Shakespeare, we did Comedy of Errors in the Gold Rush, but we did Shakespeare. We didn't, we didn't twist Shakespeare around to try to make it into something else. We still did his language and, and made it translate itself. And I think, you know, with something like this, by not, by not tweaking it, by not trying to, to twist it and turn it and bend it into something that it isn't, you get what's there. You get that universality. And, you know, I mean, my example is when people, sometimes people complain about, oh, this writing is so old and archaic and clumsy. I'm like, well, but look, really look at it. That's like complaining. It's like doing a Shakespeare play and going, well, verse, nobody talks in verse. I'm not going to do that. Well, you are if you're going to honor the form and you have to. And, you know, the great thing about working here is I can always hearken over to Shakespeare as an example. And then people go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, Shakespeare, we, we always honor that. But then when we do a more contemporary play, sometimes we forget to. And I think it's just really important to go, this is what this is. Let's try to do this as best we can. And and even in the design process, you know, I didn't want to try to re-envision it. And so it is sort of a throwback to the way it might have been done. And then I look at this old Mary Martin production and go, oh my goodness, that is such... <laughs> <laughs> an old-fashioned, quote-unquote, take on how scenery was done. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think what Jack has done uh, with the set and what we've been able to do is is new and yet honoring everything that has gone before us. Wonderful. It's it's seems like, in so many ways, it speaks to everything else you've been saying about how we take on this this piece in the time that we're living in but fully aware of everything that's come before yeah. as well yeah and that rose-colored lens rogers and hammerstein have handed us on a silver platter i think i, I just can't wait 
for the first audience because I know people are going to, we're going to hear audible sighs when certain songs start because those songs are just in our DNA as American theater goers. And the first notes of some enchanted evening, we're going to hear, oh, I, you know, I, I really think we're going to get uh -huh. that kind of response from the people who, who know this piece inside and out. And that's a good thing. That's a great thing. Certainly is. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Play On podcast. If you are tuning in for the first time, be sure to catch all our previous interviews on the festival's webpage. Be on the lookout every Friday for a new episode with your favorite directors, actors, and designers from our 2015 season. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes through your computer or mobile device. Search for Utah Shakespeare Festival Play On Podcast on your favorite podcast app. You can now locate the podcast on our website by clicking on the news headline at the top of the festival, bard.org homepage. Thank you.